Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and uh, I've got with me my news, UFO news sidekick buddy for the first segment here, uh, Martin Artiste Willis. Wow. Does that have like one of those apostrophe apostrophes things? I think so. Yeah. Wow. I- I'm not well, completely sure how you spell it. <laughs> that That's good enough. Yeah. Just, I didn't even know that uh, you're a painter. Well, I just have fun with it. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself an artist. I just like throw a bunch of paint on, you know, canvas and, and mm-hmm. just have some fun. So it's fun. I like to do it when I have time, but time is slim. I almost got back into it a few months ago, but now I'm moving. That's not fun. Yeah, moving's never fun. And I found out from my guest today. So to let people know who the guest is today, uh, it's David Marler. Some of you may be saying, hey, you just had David Marler recently. True. But David Marler is an excellent researcher. And, um, you know, just so the listeners know, and and you might have known, you know, things are, I've changed a little bit for open minds, but... I'm just, we're more and focused on the credible information out there. Why is it just because we, we think everything else is silly? No, not at all. Uh, it's more along the lines of, I just think it's an underrepresented area where a lot of people are looking for information, credible information. Mm. And mm. so I want to focus on that because, you know, this Pentagon thing happened. I'm sure there's a lot of people I would be too thinking, you know, what is this? You know, what credible information is there out there? Um, most people in the general public haven't heard uh, that there's credible information. So, uh, you know, instead of having to go Google UFOs and finding all the crazy stuff, hopefully, um, you know, they can come here and find some credible information. And I know it's a stepping stone because then people, uh, once they begin to explore and kind of the more safer, uh, more well-established information, then they develop what their interests are and look into other things. But uh, I think it's important to kind of stake this ground and, and to, to, you know, um, defend this uh, this bastion of at least some credible information. So that's what we're doing. And David Marler is great at this because, so in other words, I, I think the way I feel is focusing more on quality than quantity as far as guests go. And David Marler, as you know, if you heard him recently, is is excellent, and he does great research. And one of the great pieces of research that he's done recently um, is to investigate this uh, Battle of L.A. incident, which we'll talk more about. 1942, Mm. Los Angeles, uh, unknown objects flies over Los Angeles. They opened up, you know, this was just after uh, Pearl Harbor, so they were ready anti-aircraft guns just go crazy shooting at whatever this thing is and they don't get it because it goes 
down the coast and back, and we'll talk more in detail. But uh, it's also what's surprising is Marler's uh, investigation has demonstrated that this is actually a much more significant case than even I you know, had or realized before he put it all together like this. And I think he's the only one who's done as in-depth of research, putting it all together like he has. And, of course, he's great at referencing some of the other uh, researchers who have, you know, uh, also looked into this and gotten some of the information that he's been able to um, um, use in this investigation. So this is a great, this is a lot of fun, um, this interview here about the Battle of L.A., Great. Well, a couple things I want to say. First of all, I commend you for your efforts. Oh, thank you. Um, and secondly, um, you can't have David Marler on enough, in my opinion. I know. Um, I agree. I would have him on every week <laughs> if he would be on the show. I mean, he's just amazing. He's top-notch, top shelf. So, yeah. I agree. He's I, a lot of fun, and um, yeah. he's got so much to talk about. And you know what's really fun, too, especially I, – I don't know why I never realized this before, but I think it's because I've been focusing on these interviews, and I got uh, these Devil's Tower uh, UFO event interviews, and David Marler was there, and I interviewed him, and I edited that together, and that local news actually interviewed him, and I'm going to be putting another piece together with him and some of us um, this week. Uh, so keep an eye out on the YouTube. But he's very articulate, and he is so well-spoken that right. uh, it's it's just it's fun I, listening to him and having him convey this information. I think articulate and well-spoken is the same thing. The same thing. thing? Yeah, I think so. But anyway, you articulated Fine. it well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I thought, and that also made me think of the art, because he's, he's into triangle UFOs. He's written a book book about that and that's what most people know him for uh great investigations into that and uh, one mm -hmm. of your paintings is a triangle ufo that you're going to give to mr marler i think that's great that's right i still have it here and i'm packing up to move i have been looking for the right size box while he patiently waits for <laughs> it to to arrive in the mail he's will... excited about it oh that's awesome mm -hmm. that's good you would think yeah. you were like some famous person <laughs> You kind of well, are. the joke's on him then. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, that will be the show today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but of course, uh, before we get into all of that, um, we talk UFO news. Oh, you want me to tell you my funny story too? I would absolutely love to hear that. I need a laugh about right now. <laughs> okay. So, and this relates to, to UFO news because there was a spectacular. Um, show in the sky last night. Amazing light show. Um, however, uh, especially even if you were following my Twitter, you would have been aware of what it was, um, which is, uh, well, I'll tell you in a minute. But uh, there's, I have a friend, a really good mutual friend of ours who apparently was not reading my tweets this week, but I don't blame him because he's busy putting together what will be probably one of the best documentaries to come out in quite some time on UFOs. Uh, this is our good friend Lee Spiegel, a journalist who formerly wrote for the Huffington Post, but now he's working with James Fox, who um, has created what I think are some of the best UFO documentaries out there, Out of the Blue, and I Know What I Saw. And uh, he's working on a new one, and Lee's working with him, so they're actually both out in California. 
um, in the San Francisco area editing this new documentary. And uh, somebody came in. I talked to because uh, Lee called me very excited last night. Oh, and he didn't call somebody me. had Boy. ran downstairs and said, hey, guys, uh, I don't know what this is, but there's something really weird in the sky. I think there might be a UFO out here. So they go all go outside and they see this large cone shape uh, glow in the sky. Huge. Wow. Lee showed me some pictures and the edge of this cone was really bright. And he said it seemed like it like slowly went over them. And then, um, you know, disappeared over the horizon. And uh, it somehow kind of, wow. like, changed in luminosity while it was doing this, is what he described. That's so I amazing. was like, wow. And uh, he's like, yeah, let me send you the pictures. He sent me a couple pictures. And um, so I said, this is amazing, because I know what it is, and I think it's amazing. And he's uh -oh. like, What? He's like, uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, the, you know, this is SpaceX. SpaceX ah. launched a rocket. Now, when I said that, he did not seem excited. <laughs> I am because I'm so into the space stuff, and, and I'll tell you why this is such a big deal in a minute. But he was kind of pumped. He's like, oh, you think that's what it is? I was like, I know that's what it is. What you got was the reentry of the rocket. And I was like, mm. this is still exciting. You're not, you know, don't be bummed. This is good. Because what he witnessed was the first time in history a rocket has launched into space and then come back and landed on the ground. Um, of course, SpaceX has done this with their Falcon rockets uh, in the past. However, they've landed them on these remote unmanned large ships out in the ocean that's right little uh, barges exactly yeah. the barges for safety because you know the first one or two times they did this the or the first time it, the rocket fell over and exploded and uh, mm -hmm. it would have been bad if there were people there but uh, they've got it down now so they landed it in california so his part was the landing when it was coming back so he seemed kind of bummed but i was excited i'm like you, this is historic. You witnessed the first time this has ever happened. This is like Flash Gordon stuff, you know? This is like Buck Rogers. We're right. able to have these rockets come back and land on the ground. Amazing. So, And these are our first steps. These, this is an important technology to get us to Mars and everything, which SpaceX plans to do within the next 10 years. So um, he wasn't exci as excited about what it was. <laughs> he was kind of – he thought maybe they really got something crazy, but uh, – Definitely, if you go look, uh, just look at SpaceX. Uh, they're, they're, the pictures are all over the news this morning. People got these amazing photos. And NBC LA got this amazing video. Uh, it just looks so surreal. These rocket launches are really crazy. And, of course, you know, uh, this one, of course, got mistaken for, for something unusual. It's happened before when SpaceX has launched rockets, uh, just the nature of their rockets, the way the right. gas is released and everything. But uh, when this all first, when this happens oh, throughout history, when rockets release gas or, or when they have um, problems, uh, they often look spectacular in the sky. And in fact, in Spirals. Norway. Yeah, mm. in Norway, there were these spirals. And yeah. to this day, when you tell people those were rockets, there's other examples of these spirals, they don't believe you. In fact, there are some listeners listening to this right now who are like, those Norway spirals were 
portable, you know, dimensions to another portal. They were not rockets. And uh, I'm sorry. And uh, Do you think they're talking exactly like that? Very similar. Very similar. Okay. Well, mm. at least uh, that's how I imagine that they said. You know, this is the guy in the mom's basement type of thing. Um, <laughs> who just wow. wants everything to be aliens and dimensional portals and you know it's just there there might be that sort of thing i would say go look you know watch this hunt for the skinwalker documentary there is some but unfortunately you know the the norway thing was a rocket and they just do some spectacular things but it made me think even last night when i was looking at this uh or yesterday when i was uh reading about the upcoming launch which was last night uh, is that you know there are I've got a new article. Actually, I I linked to it on Den of Geek. And, you know, let me see if my other one's out. Um, so it was in the Den of Geek magazine that they made for uh, New York Comic Con, which was just this last weekend. And uh, and it, it's a small thing about space tourism. So the different technologies being used, who you could go buy a ticket from today, when you might be able to get your ride, the different technologies, all of that sort of stuff. I wrote an article on that. I wrote a longer one that's going to be up at uh, on the website at any time as soon as they recover from their New York Comic-Con partying, um, which just ended yesterday. And I know these guys party, man. It was in New York. I'm sure they had a lot of fun. Um, but uh, all of these varying technologies, the rockets are different. I mean, it used to be kind of, you know, just a handful of people that use uh, a more standard kind of craft when it was just NASA launching stuff or, or just these satellite launches. Now that private corporations are involved, the technologies vary so much so that we're going to be seeing a lot of different types of – which is exciting. It's like the future is getting here so quickly all kinds of different sort of rockets being launched. And so there's going to be different kind of lights in the sky that we haven't seen before. Like last night, more and more as time goes on and we, we start flying, you know, these, these spacecraft more and more. Right. Well, you know, it is, I think, I think it's the upper upper atmosphere where things can look really funky. uh, Like what you're talking about when they have a, a fail, failed missile launcher, but uh, yeah, I I can definitely. I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful, but uh, I think it's important to have things explained that can be explained. Yeah. Um, last week I had, uh, you know, I had uh, Fraser Kane on my show from Oh yeah um, Universe Today and uh, Astronomy Cast, and he absolutely says, you know, nope. Uh, Nope, no aliens. No, no aliens coming here, and no UFOs. And um, you know, a lot of people wrote really harsh comments. But one point he made that I thought was very good is, "Hey, look, there's a box over there, and there, someone's going to tell me that there's something in that box. Well, I can't see inside that box, so I have no evidence." So he made a really good point to the fact where you know, uh, every you know, the people that claim that aliens are visiting—that's what UFOs are. Um, it's, I'm not saying that's not what they are, but he makes a good point to say, we don't have any evidence as to what they are at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, I don't know how I got onto that topic, but. Um, no, it makes sense. It's just that, uh, the evidence part portion of it, cause you know, I've been saying that and, and, uh, you, someone even challenged me on my, um, 
YouTube, my last UFO seriously live. And he's like, there is evidence out there. These people that you're talking about wouldn't be researching this stuff if there wasn't evidence. Uh, and, and it's like, well, they're still researching, right? They're still trying to gather. Um, they're gathering evidence. There may be indications. Um, there may be what Frazier, for example, was talking about is kind of our null hypothesis. So if you're doing a scientific investigation, you have your hypothesis. But your job is not to prove your hypothesis. Your job is to not to disprove your hypothesis. You're trying to prove the null hypothesis. And why is that? And that's what makes the, the practice of scientific research so powerful is that you're trying to prove what you think is the case is not the case. And if you right. can't prove what it, your null hypothesis, that bolsters your hypothesis. That means you're probably right. And so once you've done all your due diligence to and you can't prove the null hypothesis, that's when you come out and say, look, guys, we've got all of this evidence to show that we're being visited by aliens, you know, and, and here's how I've shown that they're not anything else. Um, and that's how you move forward. And, and then everybody comes and, and but we just like you're you're we just don't have, you know, that smoking gun evidence at this point. So we keep looking. That kind of brings me to the story that Ooh, I'd like great. to talk about this week. Go for it. N- nice little segue. Um, so anyway, this uh, this was published in uh, Newsweek uh, the end of last month on the 28th. And uh, basically the title, it's in tech and science part of Newsweek. And NASA 60th anniversary, why haven't we found aliens yet? And it basically goes from the first human moon landing to helping the launch of the Hubble um, Space Telescope, which has given us unprecedented views of the war- unprecedented views of the wonders which loom above the Earth's clouds. NASA has achieved a lot in 60 years since it was founded, but finding aliens, unfortunately, is not on that list. Uh, there was one part of this. Uh, you know, it goes on to talk about the the Drake equation, which I think is personally, I think is outdated. Um, um, you know, with all the new discoveries of, you know, Earth-like planets and planets, and the possibility of so many planets, it kind of kind of blows the Drake away, uh, equation away. But uh, only in numbers, possibly the the gist of the theory still makes sense. I'm not really sure, but. Um, I thought this part was interesting. In a paper published in the journal Nature, physicists Giuseppe Concotti and Philip Morrison uh, posited that if aliens exist, they would most likely get in touch with other civilizations, like our own, by pinging off electromagnetic signals signals into space in the hope that they'd be picked up. Now, this is what I want to argue that. And the reason I want to argue that is I don't necessarily think that if aliens are out there that they would be thinking in the way that we would think. So I, I don't think there's any uh, there's really any credibility to that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's why I wanted to read this. I mean, I do understand what they're thinking, but uh, they're taking that in human form and human thoughts and human nature, and we have absolutely no idea. Uh, what's out there and and what type of uh, thinking that intelligent life would have. What do you think about that? I agree with you in that it's I, I feel that that 
answer. Oh, you know, they would ping off signals. It's very, very unsophisticated. And um, it, it, I think that the, uh, the problem with SETI speculation or scientific speculation along these lines is that these people, their discipline is typically a science one, such as most of the time, and this gentleman's probably an astronomer. An astronomer, uh, this isn't an astronomy issue. This is a uh, more of a social or more of a social issue. I think that you would need, you know, I think that social scientists, um, communications people, they would all have uh, just as good, if not better, input than an astronomer on how a, a culture, another culture, may contact us. Um, not only that, uh, I would imagine, I mean, if right now we uh, found another culture, a civilization that was less technical, technically advanced than ours on another planet, you know, we would be very careful and we'd have to put a lot of thought into how and when uh, we would interact with this other culture. Um, so it, it's much more nuanced and I think a, a, a complicated than just saying, oh, we'll just send them signals. We'll send them a signal. Mm -hmm. That'll work. I mean, that would be ridiculous. That would be so stupid of us to send some random signal. Um, it wouldn't even make any sense. So uh, it doesn't – I think that, that a lot of the answers like that just, just – unfortunately, I don't think they're they're that well thought out. They're just kind of uh, – in their defense, it's probably just a journalist asking him the question, which is fair, and they're just shooting from the hip and not putting much – thought to it and just saying, hey, it would probably be this, you know? So um, I think it would be interesting. I know Paul Davies from the University of Arizona uh, has a committee, uh, had at least a committee with SETI where they were kind of post-detection and they thought along these lines, what would a detection be like? Uh, what kind of things would they do? He's written books along this line and a lot of times he's very critical of the current things that they're doing there at uh, the SETI Institute or some of the different SETI groups out there. So, yeah, I agree with – I don't think that that makes very much sense at all. Um, and in fact, you know, I think that uh, some could argue that the Star Trek type of situation – and I think in that article or another article that was out recently um, – let me see. There was another – Yeah, it's called uh, – I know what you're talking about. Here's why aliens will probably come in peace. Yeah, it's probably that one because they talk about how uh, in one of those they talk about the possibility like Santa Friedman does that we're kind of um, being kept from everyone else. We're too dangerous, you know, that yes. we're being watched and observed, but nobody's we're not ready to be uh, engaged with yet. Uh and yeah, we're in tribal warfare. Which would make mm. sense. And if that's the case, you know, I'm sure they would be able to elude our detection, at least elude mass detection. If that's That would be a good scenario for where we might be, where we catch glimpses of them sometimes, but they don't let us blatantly, you know, uh, communicate with them or anything. That's a possibility. I mean, uh, why wouldn't it be? Um, so, yeah, I just uh, – that, that ping thing just seems really silly. Now, we only have like a minute left or something like that. Um, we wanted to talk about the Florida thing. Do you think you can squeeze that in in a minute? In a minute? Oh, just that, yeah, Florida, there were fireballs, uh, at least a fireball videoed over Florida. But that could be part of the SpaceX rocket because ah. um, pieces mm -hmm. of the rocket 
uh, dislodge and then fall back to space. Um, so it could have Ch- been Ch- that Earth, or some yeah. other space junk. From the videos, it definitely looks like space junk of some sort uh, or that? a meteorite because it's a fireball that breaks up in the sky. Cool looking. Yeah. Um, you know, one other quick thing. We just have a few. I was just thinking about the, the, the re-entry of a whole rocket. I mean, they, they must have such – it must all be covered in heat shield. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with it. The, I'm sure it is. Uh, I don't know all of the details. I mean, it comes back. It's like a candlestick that goes up and comes back. So mm-hmm. maybe because it's kind of like a needle, it uh, can pierce. I don't know if that helps, uh, to be honest. But yeah, I don't oh. know totally about the reentry. Although, you know, this is the first stage, the rocket uh, that goes up and then comes back. So it doesn't go as high as the rest of the, the, the payload. Wow. Um, I got it. But yeah, that's a good question. And we're out of time. Yep, and we are out of time. So we'll be right back with David Marler after this break. Thank you very much, Martin. Very welcome. We'll be right back. I am very happy to welcome David Marler back to the show. And the reason, of course, we've got David back, uh, like I, I had mentioned, is just I want to highlight what uh, I think has been a very significant finding on and, and a case that many of us were already aware of, which is the Battle of L.A., which uh, I guess, you know, uh, of course, you wrote the book on triangles. You're known for the triangle UFOs. What inspired you to look further into the Battle of Los Angeles? Well, Alejandro, thank, first, thank you for letting me be back on the show. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you and with your audience. Um, I finished my book on triangular UFOs, and after an onslaught of correspondence from just people from all over the world that were responding to the book or sharing information, uh, I finally kind of caught my breath, so to speak, <laughs> and had some free time. And I pretty much asked myself that same question, well, what am I going to do next? And of course, as you know, I have a, a wealth of historical UFO materials here in my private library. And uh, I began to think about some of the cases that I was always fascinated with, but it, it, no offense to previous researchers, felt like maybe they hadn't really been given their justice as far as in-depth investigation and research. And I've always been of the mindset, I don't care how old a case is, I think you can still uncover new information, new sources of information. And so one of those on my probably top three list was the Battle of L.A. And I heard about the case way back in 1989 in Timothy Good's book, uh, Above Top Secret. That was really my first introduction. And at the time, I'll be honest, I read about that and I said, well, that almost sounds too good to be true. What's this <laughs> about a UFO over L.A. being fired upon? And then, of course, you know, in the ensuing years, subsequent years, we learned more information as some researchers and reporters had documented and discussed the topic somewhat. But I really felt like it really hadn't been given its due uh, as far as a serious in-depth investigation. So uh, I started corresponding and working with uh, other UFO researchers, people that are <laughs> they have a much bigger resume than myself in this field, like Barry Greenwood. And a lot of my inspiration was drawn from Barry's research uh, because, of course, he was one of the early researchers with the Freedom of Information Act to garner all of these 
uh, declassified military documents. And um, there's a lot of information. And he was able to share with me his entire uh, file, case file, on the Battle of L.A. incident. And just one little point I'd like to bring up, because I often see this posted on on different blogs and websites. You know, people say, oh, a case from 1942. Why are we rehashing these old cases? Well, in point of fact, one of the reasons is because a lot of these documents aren't declassified until decades after the event. Hmm. And I bring I bring that up because the documents that Barry was able to uh, gather through the Freedom of Information Act, most of these didn't surface until 1977. So that is one of the reasons why we reinvestigate these old cases. It's not because they're old and, oh, isn't it nostalgic just to kind of go back and reminisce about these? No, it's because it takes 20, 30, 40, 50 years for documents to become available. And with those documents, we hope we might have a thread that we can pull on that will lead to other information or may correlate with information we already have in the books. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and and you know what the the truth is too. We don't have um, the same amount of data for anything except for those military cases. And like you said, the military cases, including the blue book cases and all of those, um, sure. those documents are, are all older cases, and and those are the only cases that you know had a large organization um in this case the, the military investigating what had happened and uh that's one of the reasons too you know we have a lot more data for older cases than new ones absolutely and uh you know at the end of the investigation that i conducted and i'm still working on it, i'm actually in the process right now here in my research room i have an old 1942 street map of los angeles that shows all the little side streets and Something that I need to remind the audience is the fact that this did occur in 1942 before the interstate systems were put in place. Mm. So many of the intersections and streets that are alluded to in either the government documents or in the vintage newspapers, which I have most of the original newspapers from those that, that morning and the, the subsequent morning, um, they reference witnesses at various locations. Well, if you pull up a map today, many of those streets don't exist. Oh, wow. <laughs> because of the state system. Mm. So we have to go back to the old maps from 1942 in order to see the streets as they existed at the time of this sighting. Mm hmm. Well, we'll get into some of this later on, too, but uh, uh, also in defense, even though we did this in the last time I had you, in defense of historical cases, is that, you know, this phenomena, I think that's one of the misperceptions that a lot of people interested in this phenomena have that uh, I feel in this age, especially with the show and what Open Minds is doing, we're trying to correct, is that there is not a lot of credible information on UFOs. You may go on the internet and see all this stuff about aliens and crash retrievals and all of this stuff, but most of it is not credible. As you and I know, most of the time you follow it and the the uh, origins of this information is highly, highly dubious. So really, there's only a handful of r very credible, substantial stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the signal to noise ratio, as we often allude to it as. And uh, I, in fact, I had the dean of library, library sciences with University of New Mexico here, which is where all of my historical material will eventually wind up. And uh, we were having that very discussion. Uh, I was showing them some of the more credible cases, and he was very fascinated with the Battle of L.A. In fact, I lectured uh, at UNM 
uh, last year on the Battle of L.A. incident and the audience, many of whom were faculty and staff of the university there, were very intrigued by the case. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see how you can't be intrigued with this case, regardless of what your quote unquote take is on it. Uh, because something did happen. We have ample evidence to support that in the way of military documents, newspapers, eyewitness accounts. Uh, the question, and, and I am one of those that still ask that question, what happened? Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know, going and investigating it, and we'll discuss some of the different aspects of the investigation. We, we can't say what it was, but we, I think, can definitively say what it wasn't. So I, I can, however, see how people would not get as excited or see it as a as credible of a case um, in the way I, I would imagine many people present it because you have done uh, a lot of work uh, and no presentation of this case have I seen uh, more thorough or demonstrating um, that it's a, a very important case given, you know, because I haven't seen the, the data that you have shared. Uh, yeah. I think that you've gathered you know more information together than anyone and you know what's resulted uh, as you say is a very significant case so maybe what we'll do now is get into what had happened in um as kind of a a nutshell concise way as possible absolutely well uh, of course we're going back to 1942 uh the early morning of february 25th 1942 and the entire uh southern half of California was thrown into a blackout. Uh, Now, we have to keep in mind, you know, for some perspective here, this was just uh, two months after the attack at Pearl Harbor. And as I always uh, reference it, as you heard me say in my presentation recently, you know, it was the 1940s equivalent of 9-11. You know, the attack on Pearl Harbor collectively shocked the entire country and really was the final straw in pushing us into uh, becoming engaged in World War II. Up to that point, the United States was somewhat divided. Do we really want to engage in another world war? Well, you know, now it became personal. Uh, we lost, you know, a lot of American lives during the attack at Pearl Harbor. And so this was just two months in the wake of that. And there was a heightened state of anxiety specifically on the West Coast of the mainland United States. And Many people, military authorities as well, uh, were anticipating what we felt was an imminent attack on the part of the Japanese military on the West Coast. And in fact, an attack did happen, uh, albeit 36 hours before the incident that we're going to talk about, where a Japanese sub actually surfaced off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, and uh, fired 13 shells at an oil refinery in Elwood uh, and uh, caused minimal damage, only $500 and uh, in damages. And then the submarine that had fired the rounds quickly went out to the Pacific and disappeared. Um, So fast forward 36 hours in the wake of that incident. Now there was a very heightened state of anxiety. And many people attribute the events that we're going to discuss as all attributed to jittery war nerves. I will admit there there was an element of hysteria that played out, but I don't think we can use hysteria as a blanket explanation for everything. And we'll talk about some some reasons why. But in the early morning of February 25th, uh, a, an inbound radar target was detected. And I've, I've stated this many times in my lectures, and I've had skeptics afterwards never reference this in the fact that there was radar confirmation of an unknown aerial object moving in from the northwest towards the greater Los Angeles area. 
We have the government documents. We know the name of the radar operator, the name of the officer that was observing the radar uh, target moving inbound. And in fact, it wasn't just one radar. Uh, admittedly, in 1942, we had very crude radar. I will be the first one to acknowledge that. But the one thing we need to keep in mind is there were three separate radars tracking this object for 120 miles. We had uh, two SCR-270s, which was the first long-range radar used by the Army, the United States Army. And then we also had an SCR-268, which was a short-range radar. So we had three radars that were pinpointing and tracking this object for 120 miles moving inland. And that, and again, the skeptics never want to address this, that is what precipitated all the ensuing events, namely the blackout and then later the subsequent firing of anti-aircraft guns on an object or objects that were seen in the sky. And so it's really hard to imagine in this day and age the entire southern half of California, including the greater L.A. area, being plunged into a blackout. But that is what, in fact, happened as a result of this target moving inland. And uh, any aircraft batteries had been placed along the West Coast, again, in anticipation of a potential Japanese attack. And uh, according to the military records, they were given orders to fire. They were on green status alert, which meant that they were ready to fire at any potential targets that they saw. And uh, an entire barrage of anti-aircraft shells were uh, released. And as you can imagine, what goes up comes down. And there was a lot of property damage as a result of all the shrapnel falling down all over the greater Los Angeles area, all the way down to Long Beach. I have an original Long Beach newspaper that describes the rain of shrapnel that came down. And uh, despite all of this material being launched into the air, nothing was ever brought down. And so uh, we have many witnesses. And something that I think that really surprised you as well was in looking at the timeline. This object came in, uh, tracked on radar, moved inland, uh, was photographed by a member of the press. And that's a whole story unto itself, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about. And then moved down towards Long Beach, disappeared. And then 20 minutes after the firing died down, a, the same or a similar object reversed course and basically backtracked from the direction it had originally come from and then disappeared off of the uh, long or off of the Santa Monica coast. And so this, we have, uh-huh. we have two overflights essentially of an unknown target. And uh, how do we know this info, its flight path? Was it tracked on radar the, the entire time or is this a combination of radar and win- witness accounts? Oh, no. Very very good question. The radar actually disappeared off radar right before it, it this object apparently came over uh, the mainland. And to your point, I, I've, I've spent hours and countless hours trying to correlate eyewitness testimony from the newspapers, the military accounts. But more importantly, quite often we talk about documents. Sometimes in these historic UFO cases, the best quote-unquote documents we have are in fact audio recordings. Mm. And one of, the, one of the best one is Byron Palmer, who was a CBS uh, radio news broadcaster. He actually, and we, st- we st- still have the recording, many of your audience may- members may have actually heard this on the internet, they can look it up. But Byron Palmer actually did a radio broadcast that morning that generally conforms or comports with the military reports and the newspaper accounts of this object that was tracked uh, in the convergence of searchlight beams and were fired on by anti-aircraft shells. And it talks about the object and its flight path 
And the flight path that Byron Palmer describes correlates quite well with all of the locations and, and cities and neighborhoods that were mentioned in the newspapers and the government documents. So in correlating these various types of information, it basically lends to and the hypothesis which I go on is that it was a solitary unidentified target. There were many reports, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and make, make it sound like all of these reports correlated beautifully with one another. There were a lot of reports of people seeing flights of fighter aircraft, bombers, uh, a solitary mystery target that moved too slow to be an aircraft, which is the one in question that I think uh, – that with the hypothesis I'm working on is this unknown target that was also photographed. Um, and in fact, one thing I like to mention is the radar target was a solitary radar target, not multiple objects coming in, but one solitary target. And in the photograph, uh, the famous photograph, which we'll talk about, hopefully it photographed a solitary object. So using that, in addition to some other information, I went with the working hypothesis of a solitary unknown aerial object but again, as I, I mentioned, as I prefaced the discussion, there was a, an element of hysteria. You know, people said they saw mm -hmm. fight, saw bombers. But I would like to mention in the course of my research, uh, the Japanese military at the conclusion of World War II stated, as a matter of fact, they had no military operations over the greater Los Angeles area on the early morning of February 25th, 1942. And in fact, uh, Nobukio Nambu, who was an officer on board the submarine that shelled the oil fields 36 hours before uh, it, near Galetta, California, uh, he stated in a letter, I believe from 1974, that after they fired upon the uh, oil derricks there, that they immediately went out uh, to sea, out to the Pacific, and that basically began and ended any military operations during that cruise. So people have alluded, well, it had something to do with the submarine that, that shelled the oil fields. Well, we have Nobukio Nambu's testimony, and we also have an official declaration by the Japanese military stating they weren't involved. And then, of course, the next question comes up, because let's be honest, Alejandro, we don't look at UFO as the first explanation. Mm -hmm. Was it military? Was it United States military aircraft that were observed? And we have uh, one of the declassified documents through Barry Greenwood's research where two generals, uh, uh, Lieutenant General John DeWitt, who was actually in charge of Air Defense, Western Defense Command and Fourth Army uh, Defense, uh, he wrote a letter uh, to uh, General Searles in Washington, D.C., and he states uh, the question had been raised several times why they didn't send up their airplanes. And uh, he states, matter-of-factly, the, the reason why was they only had 45 planes at the time defending the greater Los Angeles area. And they thought that this solitary target, again, referencing a solitary target, mm -hmm. they thought that this solitary target might have been a reconnaissance plane. And he stated that despite the fact that they had fighters ready with pilots in the cockpits ready to take off, they didn't want to prematurely launch them if they thought that that was just a reconnaissance plane. Mm -hmm. In fact, he goes on to state that in his letter, they didn't want to have their aircraft up in the air half out of fuel when the actual main attack arrived. Mm -hmm. Which makes a lot of sense, which that's this type of research I love because it it makes sense. It, it answers uh, a seemingly, you know, uh, unanswerable question. And it uh, corroborates the idea of a single um, craft. 
It does. It does. Uh, you know, they thought it was uh, some type of reconnaissance plane potentially. And uh, and I do like to state that to defend the military, because sometimes the military at that time was portrayed as completely impotent. <laughs> you didn't launch planes. You didn't do anything. Well, they were taking active steps, but they were being judicious in, in what they did. And, and I agree with you. I think it was the right decision. Uh, if in fact it would have been an, an attack at the time, so you know, so it wasn't Japanese military planes, it wasn't uh, United States military planes. I think any anyone in your audience would agree. Any commercial pilot that ha- would have taken off during a blackout, <laughs> yeah, would, it would have been suicide. Uh, so I don't think we can chalk that up to it being commercial aircraft or a private mm-hmm. aircraft. Uh, and again, when you look at the amount of material that was expended, uh, 1,440 rounds of three-inch shells, and aircraft shells, in addition, I might add, to 37-millimeter rounds and 50-caliber rounds that were fired that morning. Again, this is all documented in, in the government documents through Barry Greenwood's research. So, uh, you know, I think anything like that is uh, somewhat ridiculous to entertain i've had people say well maybe it was a flock of birds well you know birds would have been dispersed and flying in all different directions with explosions taking place all around them uh another explanation uh which i agree would be the most prosaic explanation unfortunately it doesn't fit all the facts could it have been a barrage balloon that broke loose of a tether floated overhead it would have been bright silver elliptical in shape the only problem with that is in all the government documents, there was no barrage balloon reported that broke loose. And that would have been the most easy explanation to go with. And that's another mystery, Alejandro, with regard to this whole case, not just the events that played out, but the government's reaction to it. And people ask me, well, what was the official government explanation? And, and my response to those people that asked that question, well, that depends. Uh, you know, take your pick. Um, Secretary uh, of the Navy at the time, Frank Knox, he said matter-of-factly in multiple newspaper accounts at the time that it basically it was just jittery war nerves. Uh, they jumped the gun. They fired on something that wasn't there. But basically, the, nothing to see here move along. At the same time, though, we had uh, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, based on General uh, George C. Marshall's uh, uh, information – and intelligence that they gathered stating that there were aircraft or an aircraft involved and uh, that it was not due to jittery war nerves. And the funny thing is, despite the fact that the public was pressuring for an answer, the uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was wanting an answer uh, and, uh, you know, everyone else is wanting an answer, Congress included. Um, they never were able to resolve those two explanations. We never had a cohesive explanation for what took place. So I think that's rather funny in that regard. Well, that's what's great about this case as well. First of all, like you said, there are uh, um, accounts from the government as far as their ideas. There's also uh, records there, like you referenced, uh, from the military and what they thought might have happened and what they tracked. And then actually what's interesting too, and I'd love to to hear your thoughts, is um, the media also – Uh, kind of recorded this event pretty accurate. I mean, really, when you boil things down, uh, the the witnesses, uh, the reporting uh, by the military and their reports and and from the uh, media, all kind of is very close. Absolutely. Again, conflicting reports with some of the the people in general. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, 
it generally conforms with the fact that there was something there. And it's interesting in my presentation, unfortunately, I can only show this visually. Uh, we have the famous photo that shows the convergence of searchlights, and there appears to be something in the convergence of searchlights. Um, and when you look at that image, as I stated in my presentation that you recently heard, um, you look at that image. They're not just willy-nilly looking and scanning the sky. And in fact, I use it as a point of contrast, a photograph, another photograph that was taken that morning, and it shows uh, searchlights in all directions. And they were focused on something, at least at one part of this entire series of events. They were focused on something. And when you look at that photo, when you read some of the newspaper accounts, when you listen to Byron Palmer's account that they had an object that was being tracked visually in the convergence of searchlights, when you see those white blobs of light around this convergence of searchlights, it's a fairly confined, localized area of anti-aircraft fire. Mm -hmm. They're not shooting in all directions. It's not right. made, as many people have alluded to. And, uh, you know, and some people have said, well, it may have been a balloon. And the thinking of the time, it's interesting, in the government documents even, you can read the fact that they state that the object was moving too slow to be an aircraft, therefore it must have been a balloon. And, of course, that's only looking at two explanations. I mean, and again, the skeptics will attack me for this. Oh, there's David Marler saying it's an alien spacecraft. I'm not saying that. I never say that in my lectures. All I'm saying is it's an unknown aerial object, unidentified flying object. Um, but, of course, in 1942, and that's another reason I love this case, we weren't thinking flying saucer. We weren't mm -hmm. thinking UFO. So at that time, that makes sense. If it's not an aircraft, it was moving too slow, so it must have been a balloon. But again, no meteor meteorological balloon was described as being released or lost at that time uh, that could have accounted for it, and no uh, barrage balloon. And it's funny, uh, many people have referenced, well, what about the Japanese Fugo bo uh, balloon bombs? Could that have been an explanation? Well, it could be if this event occurred two years later, because those weren't even uh, beginning to be launched until late 1944. So, you know, again, trying to look at all the potential explanations. And it's interesting. There was an account written in any aircraft journal uh, several years after the fact. I believe it was 1949. And they made uh, a statement stating that not one but two other balloons were released that morning. And that's what accounted for all the mayhem. And it's funny because they don't reference where they came up with that explanation. And the government documents from that time, from the days and weeks following the event, they were never able to determine what took place. So fast forward seven years later, roughly seven years later, and now they're making this definitive explanation. Well, it was it was two weather balloons that were released, uh, but it was never an official. It was I would call it a quasi explanation because it was never through any official source. It was just one military individual that wrote about it in this journal. It doesn't explain the inbound radar track. Mm -hmm. Right. And we'll get into more reasons why the balloon uh, idea doesn't fit. But we've got to go to our first break. Uh we are talking to David Marler about the Battle of L.A., one of the most interesting UFO encounters, if you're not uh, aware of it. And what, even if you are aware of it, you probably just don't know how legit. But we're going to get even deeper into this case and why it's so important after this break. So for those of you listening on KGRA, you'll hear some commercials. For the rest of you, you will hear a short musical interlude, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Open Mind GFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with uh, my good friend, David Marler. And when we went to break, you were talking about uh, the balloon theory. And, and you, like you said, it, it, it makes sense as a theory because it was something that was uh, silverish and, and moved slowly through the sky. And one thing, just to clarify, because I don't think a lot of people know this, is that there were a lot of balloons in the air, and in different World War II movies, you see the big balloons, and those were tethered with cables and floated in the air above cities and stuff, so that if the planes, which were propeller planes, were coming in to bomb, or, or they would get wrapped up in these, these cables, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And that was, again, like you said... Uh, an accurate portrayal of what uh, the Los Angeles area looked like at that time. I mean, we had gun emplacements uh, throughout the entire area of Los Angeles, uh, all the way down towards Long Beach, and they had barrage balloons tethered here and there. And uh, again, trying to find a logical down-to-earth, and I mean that term literally in this case, down-to-earth explanation, the barrage balloon would be the most logical in the sense that it was large, elliptical, light reflecting. But again, I think we have to look at all of this evidence together and to just arbitrarily say, well, it you know was sitting stationary, moving too slow to be an aircraft, so it must have been a balloon, as the thinking was at the time, as we were discussing previously. It still does not factor in that we had an inbound radar target for 120 miles being tracked by three radars, it uh, doesn't uh, conform to the fact that this object made a pass inland from Santa Monica towards uh, Los Angeles, uh, then down south towards Long Beach. 20 minutes later, the object reverses direction, which is pretty impressive flight maneuvering for a balloon that's just idly blowing in the wind. And then we had this object hovering stationary at times, moving very slowly, and having this intense barrage of any aircraft fire all around it. And the one thing I like to point out, these barrage balloons were manufactured by the Shell Corporation. It was basically just a cotton fabric wrapped in rubber latex and then painted silver. Um, We have to keep in mind that not only do we have these explosions around the balloons, and one skeptic on a blog even stated, well, it's possible that this balloon could have sustained the shrapnel because a semi-inflated balloon would have been pliable enough to allow those little shards to to bounce off, which I think is a joke Mm -hmm. because when we're talking about shrapnel from these anti-aircraft bursts, we're talking about high-velocity, multifaceted, hot shards of metal. Not only are they going to tear and rip, but in the case of these balloons with the rubber latex, that hot metal is going to melt right through, like a knife, a warm knife and a stick of butter, right through one of these balloons. And to think that all of the, this material was being expended at this object, uh, I, I just simply cannot. I have tried repeatedly to wrap my mind around the fact that this could have been a balloon that survived all of that. And to me, it just defies logic. Right. And it was it. I mean, that shrapnel is designed to penetrate aircraft. Yes. So and we're talking. A balloon. Yeah, right. And again, if if it was a balloon, uh, if it was a barrage balloon, none of the military records reference that a large 75 plus foot uh, barrage balloon was found deflated laying on top of a building. Mm-hmm. That would be something that would have unified the official explanation, as we discussed before the commercial break. Uh, there were conflicting official explanations. 
this would have answered everything. Okay, here is an explanation. We can all come to an agreement. The Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy can all agree that this is what it was. But even though that would have been the simplest thing to do, they didn't do it, Mm -hmm. which to me indicates it wasn't a balloon. And most likely the balloon uh, probably would have shown up pretty well in the images. Um, And let's get into... Uh, the image, of course, because there is this iconic image uh, that that is out there. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, would that have shown a balloon? It seems like that would have shown up better. Uh, possibly. Unfortunately, we don't know the type of camera that was used uh, to take the photo. And the one thing I like to mention before we get into the photograph, and uh, I mentioned this in my presentation recently, um, There had to be other photos taken of this object, whatever it was, uh, that morning. Uh, I find it very hard to believe that a photographer for one of the news agencies heard the anti-aircraft sirens, heard the explosions. He uh, runs to an area where that has a a decent vantage point to take a photograph of this object in the convergence of searchlights, which would have been very easy to see, especially considering everything else was blacked out in the Los Angeles area at the time. I find it very strange that this photographer goes up on a hillside, snaps a photograph, one photograph, turns around and goes home. You have to think at that time, February 25th, 1942, we were waiting for the Japanese to attack. Suddenly there's anti-aircraft bursts, there's anti-aircraft sirens, there's searchlights sweeping the sky. If you're a news photographer in February 1942, you're thinking is this is the story of the century and I've got the pictures to show for it. This is going to be the the hallmark of my career. Right. That's kind of like what, especially wartime Pearl Harbor just happened. Absolutely. That's what, an, as a news person, that's what you're waiting for. That's why you're there. Is you're waiting. If something happens, yep. I'm going to get the photo. We have other photos from that morning, but not depicting this mysterious object. It's just simply showing military or it's showing searchlights being set up, things of that nature. A couple showing searchlights fanning in different directions. But the iconic imagery that you were describing, the iconic photograph that's on the Internet uh, is compelling. It's a haunting image. You have these searchlights piercing the darkness and you see this mysterious object in the convergence. And then you see these little dots of any aircraft fire around it. I mean, when I first saw it, I, I have to tell you, it was compelling when I saw that in Timothy Good's book. Um, but we were talking earlier, Alejandro, about documentation. Well, documentation also comes in the form of photographs. And uh, in researching not only the Battle of L.A., but other historical UFO cases, I really try to find original materials. Part of that's because I'm a historian. I'm sentimental. I like to have original pieces of history. Um, in September 2012, Uh, on eBay of all places. I'd love to tell you I got this through through some secret government insider, but (laughs) I actually purchased this on eBay. I found an original 1942 photograph that is a a clearer image, slightly clearer image of what you see on the internet if you Google the Battle of LA and see the famous photograph. But what was intriguing about this, and again, I've done a lot of other historical research, so I know what to look for on these photos. Um, not only was it an original photo, but on the back side was stamped on the back, February 25th, 1942, property of Associated Press. And it has all the relevant earmarks that are you know, indicative of a legitimate photo from that time. I have others I can compare it to. But besides that, it actually had the original news teletype 
on the back. And on that teletype, it states at the very top and the very bottom, Associated Press Photo Caution Use Credit. Now, what's interesting about this is all the indicators show it's an Associated Press photo, yet historically, previous researchers thought that the photo was taken by Paul Calvert, who was a photographer for the Los Angeles Times. The only reason that I've been able to deduce that they thought that was because it was mixed in with other negatives attributed to Paul Calvert uh, in, in a little photo sleeve at the Los Angeles Times archives. Uh, recently, in the last few years, uh, our, our mutual friend and colleague, Ben Hansen, did a TV segment for a show that I worked on as well, albeit for a different episode, called UFOs Declassified for the Smithsonian Channel. And uh, it was very interesting because Wayne Abbott, the producer, went to the Los Angeles Times archives with Ben, and they did an on-camera interview with Simon Elliott, who is the chief photo archivist for the Los Angeles Times. And they pull out the original negative. And what was interesting, and I heard this firsthand from both Ben as well as Wayne Abbott, who was the producer, um, as they're looking at the original negative, Simon Elliott states that I've noticed something I've never noticed before. And he indicated the notch codes, little notches on the side of the negative. And he stated, I've never noticed this before, but in the tens of thousands of negatives that I review here at the L.A. Times, I've never seen a negative with this notch code. And the LA Times, I believe, have like a, a, a triangular notch, if I'm not mistaken, or a double triangular notch on the side. This one had a semi-oval shaped uh, notch. And so he stated on camera that uh, they said, well, what does this mean? He says, well, it suggests it was not taken by an LA Times photographer. All LA Times photographers use the same film stock. Now, this is so funny how the story evolves because that literally literally was filmed the, the day before Wayne Abbott and the same film crew came to my home to do a segment on triangular UFOs. And when they walked into my research room, they saw my photo hanging up, the original photo from 42. And they said, yeah, we just did a story on that. And he said, uh, I said, well, that's the original photograph. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, this is an original photograph from February 9, 1942. And when he looked at it and he saw what I saw, the fact that it's all attributed to the Associated Press, he says, this makes total sense. He goes, let me show you the footage we just shot the day before. And he showed the scene with Simon Elliott, where Simon Elliott states, this is suggested based on this notch code. It was not taken by a Los Angeles Times photographer, but they didn't know who. Enter my picture with the Associated Press. We now think it was the Associated Press that actually took the photograph. Now, more specifically, and this is what's very interesting, we, at the beginning we talked about researching these old cases and you never know where new data will take you. I reached out to the individual that sold me this photograph, and I've actually gotten to know him quite well with subsequent uh, interviews by phone and, and via Skype. Uh, the gentleman lives in the Los Angeles area, and on weekends he and his wife would go to yard sales and estate sales. One particular Saturday, they went to a yard sale not very far from where they lived, he, he told me. And while his wife was looking at miscellaneous items, there were two folding tables in the front yard. And under one of the folding tables were two large file boxes. And each file box was filled with old file folders. Each one had a, an 8x10 glossy black and white photo. 
with a news teletype similar to the one that I described on the Battle of L.A. photo. And he's looking at these and he said, Dave, there were there were wartime photos. There were photos of Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, just all types of celebrities and basically anything that made news in the 40s and 50s. There were photos and these were all original and they all had the original news teletypes glued to the back. And as as you or I would, if we were in that situation, uh, the gentleman, uh, his name's Guy asked the woman that apparently was in charge of the yard sale, ma'am, where did you get all these photos? These are really fascinating. And very innocently enough, she replies with, oh, those belong to my grandfather. He was a photographer for the Associated Press. So uh, apparently this was his personal portfolio of photos that he had taken during his time at the Associated Press. And after 75 plus years, I think we now know the name of the photographer, the photographer, the grandfather of the woman that was having the yard sale. Her grandfather's name was Ira W. Goldner. And I was able to research him and with uh, contacting the family, was able to get additional photos of Ira, uh, photos of um, his press badges from the 30s, 40s and 50s. And in fact, he even had a studio in 1942 in Hollywood, California. And when I researched him, uh, if if your audience members listen uh, to this and they Google Ira Goldner, you'll find only two or three references to him. But one is a photo of Bing Crosby and his family, and it credits Associated Press Ira Goldner. But more importantly, Alejandro, another photograph shows Los Angeles police rounding up Japanese citizens, and it was dated, I believe, February 10th or 12th of 1942 in Los Angeles. So we have Ira Goldner that took this, that had this photo in his portfolio. We have his studio in Hollywood, California, 1942, and online you can find a photograph of him photographing Los Angeles police rounding up Japanese citizens a week to a week and a half before the, the Battle of L.A. incident. So it puts him at the time and place where he would have had to have been to take that photo. Mm-hmm. And so, and and the negative, I guess, was found in the Times archives. Correct. Uh, the the original negative uh, is in the the Los Angeles Times archives. But to Simon Elliott's point, and I certainly, you and I uh, during the break, we're talking about finding credible sources to verify this information. He is the chief archivist for the Los Angeles Times, and he stayed mm-hmm. on camera. Of the tens of thousands of negatives that I have and I manage here at the Los Angeles Times, I've never seen a negative with a different notch code. Who knows how it got there, I guess. Uh, Maybe just because they decided to purchase it or use it. Through the Associated Press, more than likely. Mm -hmm. And then, just to bolster my argument also, in doing my historical research, I found two other references to the famous photos. One was from Time Magazine, the March 8th, 1942 edition. And in it, it shows the famous photo in Time Magazine. Time Magazine actually ran the famous photo, and at the very bottom, it credits Associated Press. Hmm. And the Asheville Citizen newspaper, I have an original copy from uh, February 27, 1942. It ran the famous photo on their front page, and at the very bottom, it credits AP as the source of the photo. Mm-hmm. So you found where it comes from, but what does this photo show i mean a lot of people argue that it shows a diamond shape but uh, that also other people argue that no that diamond shape is actually the convergence of the convergence of the light yeah um 
Do you feel you're able to make anything out? Yes, uh, I do. But uh, to clarify your point, um, the famous photo that's circulating out there on the Internet was a doctored photo in the sense Mm. that there was enhancement done to the searchlights so that the photo, which still shows the searchlights, I have to clarify that, still shows the the searchlights, but they're not as intense. And so they used to do painting and airbrushing, if you will, on the original negatives back in those days to so the image would translate better into newsprint and so the one that's out there is not the original negative uh ben hansen while he was there was able to secure a high resolution image and to your point it shows much more clarity it shows the original image undoctored and i think that's very important any work that anyone has done on the image that's circulating on the internet is worthless because that was enhanced artificially so we have to go back to the original negative. And to your, your question, after enlarging it, after dropping the brightness down to where all the searchlights wash out, what you're left with is essentially a, a, what looks like an ellipse or an oval shape. Um, I know it's going to dash a lot of people's be- preconceived beliefs against the rocks, but if you see a flying saucer with a little dome on top, I'm sorry, it's just not there. Uh, on the original photo, the the dome that people often see in the doctored photo, you can clearly see when you do basic contrast enhancement, there's three or four explosions that were taking place at the that split second that the photographer snapped the famous photo. And you can see this clear as day. There, it's not like reading into the clouds and seeing a giraffe or an elephant. Um, it's mm-hmm. very clear, and and I believe Alejandro, you saw it during my recent presentation, mm-hmm. and you can very clearly see these circular or globular explosions of a much higher light density than this object or thing that appears to be uh, either directly behind those explosions or underneath those explosions. But for people that see a flying saucer with a little dome on top, uh, I'm sorry, that's just not what the original negative shows. Mm -hmm. But to your question, we're left with this mysterious object. Now, something else is not only the object, but the searchlights. And again, understanding we're now looking at the original negative, some of the searchlight beams apparently are uh, reflections. And I don't mean the ones coming from the ground up. But on the original negative, you, there's at least one beam that shoots off at an oblique angle from towards the top of the object. And as you look at the light density, the light density is stronger closer to the object. And as it tapers away off off to the edge of the photo, it, the light dissipates. So in other words, the source of that light beam is the object itself, which suggests mm-hmm. it's a reflection that whatever this object was, it was light reflective. And mm-hmm. at least one of these searchlight beams is bouncing off of some type of object. Now, we're running out of time, unfortunately. I know it flies. Um, but I guess to wrap up the picture thing, that's where you've got some ongoing research where you are continuing to get some analysis done of the photo? Correct. Yeah. Our, our mutual friend and colleague, Mark D'Antonio, I recently shared a, uh, a copy of that high-resolution image and asked him if he could to please try to extrapolate whatever information he can, if any, from that original negative image. So that information is still pending. But, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing if he can glean any additional detail from that. 
But uh, again, my thanks to uh, Ben Hansen for providing that. Um, you know, we all work collaboratively. Collaboratively, we can't do it alone. So I want to thank him for his efforts. But you know, this brings us back uh, to something that I had mentioned in my recent uh, presentation on this. When we look at a case, and you alluded to this at the at the introduction, Alejandro. When we look at UFO cases, like you said, many aren't that credible or many don't have that much corroborative information. But I always like to point out, when you look at the Battle of L.A. incident, we're not just dealing with a multiple witness case because admittedly tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of witnesses observed this as this as these series of events played out in the sky over Los Angeles in the surrounding area, February 25th, 1942. So it's a multiple witness case in that regard. It's a photographic case. We have the photo. We have a scan of the, the original negative. It ran in the newspapers at the time. It's also a radar visual case. It's not just eyewitness testimony we're basing this on. We have radar confirmation from three radar systems. We also have military engagement with this object, whatever it was, where we fired on it repeatedly with multiple weapons hmm. and as a result of that episode we have official documentation documenting that yes these events did happen and then of course we have all of the newspaper accounts as well so when you roll all that together i would argue yes this is an old case but many of the new cases we have don't have even close to this amount of information exactly and i think that's a that's a great point and um, you know, records are still records. Um, so especially with this case, um, and, and when over LA, I mean, just after Pearl Harbor, obviously, uh, it's going to be a very, very, very big deal. And oh, surprisingly, right? Just uh, the, nobody died from the shrapnel falling. Uh, surprisingly, surprising. But, Yes. People did pass away from, like, heart attacks? There were five or six uh, deaths, unfortunately, which, you know, I always like to make mention of. People tend to laugh at this, you know, the skeptics laugh at it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was a chapter in World War II history. And a sad reality is, to your point, five or six people did die. They died of heart attacks and vehicular accidents. Some people were trying to drive during the blackout, which is not exactly the smartest thing to do. Uh, and then, of course, with the heightened state of anxiety for people that are already maybe predisposed to have heart conditions, it, there were yeah. two or three heart attacks. So th some people did die as a result of this. And um, I always like to make mention of that fact and, uh, you know, remember them. You know, I mentioned their names in my presentation just to pay tribute to those individuals that unfortunately lost their lives. Mm hmm. Well, thank you so much. This is just a, a great case. Now, I wanted to just go over it during the show. However, your lecture, which is very well organized and laid out, um, you did it uh, during the 75th anniversary, essentially, of the event. We were just, I believe, days from the 75th anniversary, almost to the day. So that was yeah. a really nice opportunity. I want to thank you for Oh, are you kidding? It was our pleasure. It's amazing. So, and you can watch that uh, in the 2017 um, uh, lectures at the video on demand for the UFO Congress. But we're out of time. Of course, the time flies. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. Thank you so much to David Marler for joining us on the show. I will put in the show notes a link 
to his website, but also a link to his talk at the UFO Congress on Battle of LA. Because even though we got to cover quite a bit, we did not cover everything, and he does so in his talk. And not only that, it's laid out very logically, uh, very organized, and uh, it really is the best way to see everything about this incredible case from 1942, the Battle of L.A. It has a great name also. So thank you so much to David Marler. He was wonderful as usual. Thank you to Martin Willis for joining us with the news. You can find all the news that we talked about at openminds.tv, where you can also see a link to my Patreon page, where you can see uh, some of my Den of Geek articles, including uh, the space uh, tourism stuff that we talked about earlier. And I have a new article, too, on the science fair. So this is a documentary that's really cool. It's about this high school science fair. It's the biggest in the country. All these people from all the world around the world coming compete and these kids are amazing i mean they they the projects are really groundbreaking they're they're important projects that change um the the different fields that you know they're they're entered into so you'll definitely want to check out that documentary and check out my article which includes interviews from the directors so it's a lot of fun find that on my patreon Otherwise, the UFO Congress, uh, the UFO Congress video on demand page has more videos. So almost all the 2018 lectures from uh, the UFO Congress are up there now. So there's hundreds of lectures that you could see there. Just for a few bucks a month, you can have access to all of them. Or if you just want to watch one, you can do that too. So uh, that link is also in the show notes and you can go to ufocongress.com or at the top of openminds.tv. Uh, in the upper right, you'll also see a link to that. Be sure to join our email list to keep up on everything going on in, uh, for OpenMinds.tv and the UFO Congress. Again, you can find that at OpenMinds.tv. Uh, check out all of the cool new stuff that we're posting on the Open Minds uh, video uh, YouTube page. Uh, we have our UFO Seriously Live and other videos going up there, including a new video real soon with David Marler and others from the Devil's Tower UFO uh, of Rendezvous event that uh, was a few weeks ago, and I've got a great video going up uh, with interviews from those guys very soon here. Otherwise, I want to, of course, thank Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. It rocks if you go to the Open Mind UFO Radio page on openminds.tv. You'll have a link there and you can read more about Caleb Hanks. And then also, and his brother, Micah Hanks, is actually in those videos that I'm talking about that I'll be putting up. That I've put up one and I'll be putting another. He was at the Devil's Tower UFO event as a speaker. Um, also, I'll be at AlienCon in Baltimore. I think I mentioned that earlier. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, check that out, especially if you're on the East Coast. Come say hi. I think I'm going to do like three or four different uh, events there, like and, and different things like that. But also, of course, thank you, the listeners. This has been another great show, and we'll have another great show for you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, adios, muchachos.